Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Texas officials admit mistakes in Uvalde school shooting, saying it was the wrong decision to not engage the mass shooter sooner. This amid scrutiny over why it took law enforcement around one hour to engage the gunman. The NRA begins its annual convention in Houston today despite protests against it. We hear from an expert who gives some background on the Second Amendment. The Biden administration could be restarting idle oil refineries. Could Americans soon be paying less at the pump? A bill in the Senate seeks to push back against the World Health Organization's efforts to expand its own powers. Senator Ron Johnson says the UN agency shouldn't increase its power at the expense of American sovereignty. And this Memorial Day weekend, a retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel discusses with NTD the meaning of sacrifice. He was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for six years. Twenty-one crosses have been set up in memory of the victims at Robb Elementary. NTD's Jason Perry was at the town square in Uvalde, where members of the community are still reeling from the tragedy that unfolded there days ago. I'm here at the town square of Uvalde, Texas, and now the center of town has become the center of attention. Around this fountain at the town square, it's surrounded by 21 crosses, each having one of the victims' names on it. People have come from all around to show their respect. Um, did you say like you were related? To someone, yeah, the very first cross is my it belonged to my niece. Her name was Jackie. Jackie Gossett is my yeah, yes sir. And then so how did you find out about it? My sister Julie called me um, uh, for prayers that the school was under active. Uh, there was an active shooter in the school. And then my brother Javier called me because we're, I mean we're all close. We don't we don't get when it comes to real bad like that. Then we'll we'll call the person directly. You know, I mean, she did that for prayers, but my brother Javier called me and he said, brother, he goes, my baby's gone, man. I'm like, what? I said, no, man, I mean, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I just, I broke down too. You know, and it takes a lot for me to break down. Um, I think that, that a lot of things should change, you know, for one, the age. You know, these, are, these are kids that are out of high school, still in high school. Man, barely, they, they just better learn how to wipe their rear, you know. They're not, he's not, this guy, this kid was not a man yet. And they allowed him to get a, a rifle at 18. We can vote these people out and change the laws, the gun laws. How do you let an 18-year-old kid who can't do a lot of legal things but yet can buy guns and ammunition like this young man did? Um, just here lately, all the laws that were relaxed in Texas, you, I, any one of us can walk into a store, buy a gun, don't need permits, don't need training, don't need license. What the hell is this gonna cause? Just create chaos and, you know, so again, our only hope, my hope is that people will finally realize that we the people should be in charge and uh, demand that the laws are changed. We just, I, there needs to be better security. There was no one there to stop him. No one there, no one wanted to go in. These were just kids, they, they couldn't defend themselves. 
something like this is terrible that it happened. It's very painful for the families, and it's painful where people don't even know these folks. Uh, but, uh, you know, the man that did this, he, he must have been hurting on the inside very much to cause it, and he needed, he needed to be loved. I was able to walk into my little girl's school to vote at the same time that this was happening. And normally the school's secured, but uh, they just let us walk straight in that day. Wow. And I thought, that's so unsafe. Many people have come and gone since I've been here. Some people are writing notes on the crosses. Others are laying flowers down at the bottom of the crosses. Still, some people are laying down teddy bears and candles. Such a small town in Texas seems to have the whole world watching. Jason Perry, NCD News, Texas. And this afternoon, Texas Governor Greg Abbott said that an anonymous donor had donated $175,000 to cover the funeral costs of all who perished in the shooting. Texas officials admitted today that it was the wrong decision to not engage the mass shooter sooner. This comes after the victim's families demanded answers from law enforcement about why it took them around one hour to engage the gunman. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. Amid scrutiny of the police response to the Robb Elementary School shooting in Uvalde, Texas, officers are admitting mistakes were made. Texas Department of Public Safety Director Stephen McCraw explained Friday why police did not engage the shooter sooner. The on-scene commander at the time believed that it had transitioned from an active shooter to a barricaded subject. McCraw said the commander was convinced at the time that there was no more threat to the children. The school shooting, which took the lives of 19 children and two teachers, was carried out by 18-year-old Salvador Ramos. Ramos ultimately locked himself inside a classroom with students inside. The decision was made on the scene. I wasn't there, but at the same point in time, you know, a decision was made that this was a barricaded subject situation. There was time to retrieve the keys and wait for a tactical team with the equipment to, to go ahead and breach the door and take on the subject at that point. That was the decision, that was the thought process. That McCraw later said this was the wrong decision. Police should have entered sooner. From the, from the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, they, of course it was not the right decision, it was the wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. McCraw provided more details about how Ramos entered the elementary school and was unobstructed. He said Ramos came through a door that was propped open by a teacher just minutes prior. That same teacher had called 911 after seeing the crash and the gunman, but did not close the door. There was no school resource officer at the school, though McCraw couldn't say why. The officer, he said, later responded to the 911 call. Details provided by officials Friday give a more specific timeline of events. Here's what we know so far. At 11.28 a.m., Ramos, traveling in his grandmother's pickup truck, crashes into a ditch near the school. He exits the truck carrying a gun and a bag containing ammunition. Ramos shoots at two witnesses outside a funeral home across the street before heading toward the school. He then climbs a fence into a parking lot and fires multiple shots at the school. At around this time, the Texas DPS is alerted to the shooter by local police. At 11.30 a.m., a 911 call is made about a car crash and a man with a gun. Police vehicles arrive at the funeral home. The school resource officer arrives and confronts a teacher, mistaking them for the suspect. At 11.33 a.m., the 18-year-old shooter enters the school and begins shooting into a room. He soon enters adjoining classrooms, shooting down teachers and children. 
Over 100 rounds were fired in total. At 11.35, three police officers enter the building. The first officers receive graze wounds from bullets. None of the officers try breaking down the door to get into the classroom. At 11.44, more officers enter the building. Some begin evacuating people inside, since they said there was no way to make entry into the barricaded classroom. Teachers in other classrooms start breaking windows to evacuate children. By 12.03, there are 19 officers inside the hallway where the gunman was barricaded. At 12.15 p.m., a Border Patrol tactical unit arrives on scene. At 12.50 p.m., officers breach the classroom door and kill the suspect. McCraw said the tactical team was able to enter using keys from a janitor. He also said that between 12.03 and 12.47 p.m., several 911 calls were made from students inside the classroom pleading for help. Officials say there will be more details to come. Grace Coulter, NTD News. The National Rifle Association began its annual convention in Houston today, despite calls for them to cancel it. A constitutional activist tells us why he supports the decision. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. My opinion it is, I think it is a good thing that the NRA is going forward with their convention. As the Texas community continues to sort out the truth about the events that led to the deaths of 21 innocent children and adults, the NRA has decided to go forward with its annual convention in Houston. The organization said in a statement, As we gather in Houston, we will reflect on these events, pray for the victims, recognize our patriotic members, and pledge to redouble our commitment to making our schools secure. Mark Meckler, president of the Convention of States, says he's not a representative of the NRA, but he does have an opinion. The policies that they promote had nothing to do with this shooting. In fact, they support background checks as they exist today. They support gun safety. They do. He said the Second Amendment was created to protect the people from government tyranny. But several protesters gathered outside the convention, some shouting the Second Amendment was written in 1791 while others chanted. Meckler explained why the Founding Fathers thought it was important for the people to be armed. They lived under a government that became tyrannical, that stripped them of their weapons and ammunition, and then imposed that tyranny by literally quartering forces in their homes. And so they had this experience that the only way to resist tyranny was to have an armed population, what they called a well-regulated militia. So they understood that ultimately tyranny might need to be resisted at the point of a weapon and that the people should be armed and trained. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner said at a press conference Thursday that the city was contractually obligated to let the convention go forward. Former President Donald Trump didn't cancel his scheduled speech, while Governor Greg Abbott canceled his in-person appearance to speak in Uvalde instead. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Democrats are demanding stricter federal gun laws, and some Republicans are willing to find common ground. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. In the aftermath of the Texas elementary school shooting, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he's hoping for a bipartisan solution directly related to the facts. 
McConnell has instructed Senator John Cornyn to negotiate with some Democrats, including Senators Kirsten Sinema and Chris Murphy, in working out a compromise bill. Outrage. McConnell emphasized he's not pushing for legislation that would advance a partisan Democrat agenda, but instead find a legislative solution directly related to the circumstances of the Uvalde school shooting. Democrats will need support from at least 10 Republicans to overcome the Senate's 60-vote filibuster. Senator Lindsey Graham has suggested a willingness to work with Democrats on a legislative response. Republican Senator Mike Rounds also said a bipartisan agreement could be reached. He indicated such a bill might not include new gun regulations at all, and focus instead on providing additional funding for law enforcement to localities. Other prominent Republicans have rejected any efforts to concede to Democrats' demands on gun laws and place more attention on making schools safer. Senator Ted Cruz attended a prayer vigil in Uvalde, Texas to offer his sympathy and support to the community. Cruz was firm on his position when asked if it was time to reform gun laws. If you want to stop violent crime, the proposals the Democrats have, none of them would have stopped this. Some Democrats have expressed optimism that a compromise bill can be reached. When will it end? Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he will continue to work with Republicans to reach an agreement. He has accused Republicans of being disconnected from the suffering of the American people. Too many members on that side care more about the NRA than they do about families who grieve victims of gun violence. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Former President Donald Trump is again ordered to testify in New York's investigation. A state appeals court unanimously upheld a trial court decision from February that enforces subpoenas served on Trump, Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. The subpoenas were served by New York Attorney General Letitia James as part of her nearly three-year investigation into the Trump Organization. In January, James said she had uncovered significant evidence of fraud. Trump issued a statement saying the accusations were false and that James was targeting him and his family. The appellate court said the Trump family is not being treated differently from others in similar situations. Trump has resisted the subpoena, even though the trial court ordered him to pay a fine of $10,000 per day. And the Biden administration is reportedly reaching out to the oil industry to talk about restarting closed refineries an attempt by the White House to tackle high gas prices. Will turning refineries back on help with how much you pay at the pump? NTD's Don Moss speaks with Jason Isaac, energy expert and director of think tank Life Powered. Jason, thanks for joining us today. So the Biden administration is apparently looking at possibly restarting closed refineries to tackle gas prices. I want to get your reaction. Are you uh, feeling optimistic? What are you fe feeling hearing this? No, this isn't optimistic. It's a, a last-ditch effort and continues the streak of the Biden administration reaching out and begging Venezuela, begging Iran, Iran for oil. Uh, when we have those natural resources right here in North America, uh, it's going to take a year, maybe 18 months to get reshuttered or, or shuttered refineries back open. Would you just briefly explain what the roles of refineries are? So the refinery is referred to as really the downstream where you take oil and gas that has been piped uh, to these refineries. This is what the Keystone Pipeline was going to do. It was going to bring heavy crude uh, from North America, from Canada, down into the United States, into the Gulf of Mexico, where that would then be refined into products such as diesel, gasoline, plastics. Uh, th those refineries is where we get the goods that really are powering our nation. 
So Jason, high gas prices, are we not producing enough or are we not refining enough? No, our re refining capacity, I believe, in the last 10 years has decreased significantly. I think it's about 50%. Uh, so you can't get the assets that you need, the capital that you need to build a new refinery. And if you could, you likely can't get it approved from the federal government because the regulations and the permitting process takes years. So do you think uh, restarting refineries will have an impact on gas prices at the pump? I think the best thing that the uh, government can do right now is to get out of the way. And that's going to send signals to the market that they'll actually be able to produce, pipe, and refine more oil and gas here in the United States, which just those signals alone will decrease the cost because uh, the markets will react in that fashion. Do you see any hope for gas prices coming down in anytime soon? Unfortunately, no, maybe not until after the November elections. Uh, we're, we're going to see high demand uh, and continue to rise here in the summer. You're going to see higher electricity costs. Uh, those electricity costs, you need a lot of electricity to refine goods. Uh, and so with those costs increasing, you're going to continue to see the cost of producing, refining uh, the energy products that we use on a daily basis is going to continue to increase. Do you have any advice for uh, everyday Americans who uh, this is impacting? Absolutely. They need to contact their elected officials and tell them to embrace American energy and American energy independence. We should be building pipelines. We should be we should restart and build. But uh, the Department of Interior, the EPA, they're approving uh, windmills that produce electricity when the wind is blowing, uh, if it's not blowing too hard, but not not approving any new leases, not approving new pipelines or new refining capabilities, uh, and that's incredibly detrimental. So we've got to get those agencies to listen to the elected officials. Jason Isaac, Director of Light Power, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Republican Senator Ron Johnson is introducing a bill to push back against the World Health Organization's potential overreach. The WHO is creating an intergovernmental negotiating body that critics say would expand its own power at the expense of individual nations. According to the Daily Caller, which first obtained the bill, the legislation is called the No WHO Pandemic Preparedness Treaty Without Senate Approval Act. The bill has 15 co-sponsors. It would ensure the Senate has the power to approve or disapprove agreements made by the WHO body. Johnson told the Daily Caller, this bill makes clear to the Biden administration that any new WHO pandemic agreement must be deemed a treaty and submitted to the Senate for ratification. The sovereignty of the United States is not negotiable. And on Memorial Day, we remember those who died in service to this country. It's also a time to reflect on what exactly their sacrifices mean. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Orson Swindle, a former Vietnam prisoner of war, joins NTD's The Nation Speaks to discuss. We just did our job, uh, the duty on our country. That was our job, and we knew it. Orson Swindle was a Marine Corps pilot in 1966 when his plane was shot down over North Vietnam. He then spent six years at a prisoner of war camp in Hanoi, where he was subject to unbelievable deprivation and torture. Swindle credits his upbringing with his ability to survive as a POW. And I was from a little town of about 3,500 people back in those days in the mid-50s. And uh, we were educated so finely by our devoted teachers. I had one teacher that taught three generations of my family. They taught us about honor, honesty, commitment, responsibility, faith. Uh, and our education was to me, uh, boundless. 
Swindle says the military has a written code of conduct for prisoners of war. It evolved after the Korean War and is taught to members of the military early on in their career. We have been taught to love this country, to realize that we have to serve it, uh, and we have to do it honorably, and we have to have a commitment to do things the proper way and to always be loyal to our country and each other. Looking at the current state of affairs in America, Swindle says he is extremely distressed. He points to efforts to tear down history and calls them a long continuum of efforts to tear down this country and its culture. We don't wake up. Uh, they may succeed. And uh, my generation, we've done about all we can do. We can be an inspiration to others if they would pay attention, but I hear kids in college, they're just college, in college students talking about their insecurity and they need safe spaces to be protected from the way the world is. And you got to be kidding me. Swindle's advice to people is to get informed, be active, and pay attention to politics. You can watch the full interview with Lieutenant Colonel Orson Swindle on Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on NTD's The Nation Speaks with Cindy Drukier. More than 40 people have been arrested in New York City. Their alleged crime? On the surface, it might look like shoplifting, but there's more to it. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the details from Manhattan. You might have seen videos of people shoplifting and no one seems to be stopping them. It happened in cities across the U.S. Now here in New York, one man hired people to steal for him and he made a multi-million dollar business out of that. Ronnie Rubinoff is the alleged ringleader. Below him, around 10 organizers and 30 so-called boosters, people who allegedly stole items for him. Rubinoff trained these employees to procure and directed the boosters to steal specific items. Prosecutors say the gang stole almost $4 million worth of goods and then sold them on eBay. Ranging from high-end designer clothing, purses and shoes to drugstore products, to medicine, and to cosmetics, as well as stolen prepaid case cards. Store owners say the shoplifting not only hurts their revenue, but also endangers employees as well as customers. And the mayor says this is not something that should be happening in a just society. It erodes trust. It sends the signal that we are in the city out of control. You heard me say on the campaign trail over and over again, this is not a city where you can walk into a store, take what you want, and walk out. The individuals involved are facing a number of charges, like enterprise corruption, money laundering, conspiracy, and many more. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. An update to a story we reported on last week. New York City speed cameras will now be in use 24-7. That's after the city council agreed on the decision. Previously, they were turned off from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. and operated Monday through Friday. Most of the cameras are in school zones and operated only during school use hours. The city council also voted to expand the camera network and improve safety at 1,000 New York City intersections. But some have criticized the measure. Assemblyman Mike Riley told NTD the city is just using the cameras to make money. He accuses the city of lowering the speed limit and installing more cameras at the same time. 
At least five people are dead after a home exploded in Pottstown, Pennsylvania last night. Officials say they have no idea what caused the huge explosion, but neighbors say they've smelled gas in the area for some time now. NTD was on the scene today. We spoke with a nearby resident who heard the explosion. I thought it was the nuclear power plant because we live so close and the walls just started shaking and it wasn't stopping. He told us that he's been suspicious of that house ever since he moved into the area. This house, the house smelled like gas for a very long time and we called about it uh, when we first moved in here about a year and a half ago and they, and they told us it was safe. At a Friday press conference, reporters confronted the Pottstown borough manager. They asked if he knew about neighbors saying they constantly smelled gas in the area, including in the last few days. That's something that we're still look, looking into, and, and I'm going to let the, the professionals at, at the uh, Philadelphia Arson, uh, the ATF, and state police uh, determine that. Well, did the fire department have frequent calls to that address? You must know that one. Did the fire department go there for gas calls? Again, this is still an investigation. We're still looking at that information. Neighboring houses were damaged as well. It is not clear yet how many people have been displaced. The Lincoln Memorial is turning 100 next Monday, May 30th. The site has become a symbol of America and witnessed many significant occasions. A century of unity will now be counted as one of them. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. May 30th, 2022 marks 100 years since the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. The memorial honors the 16th president and was constructed to highlight his role as the great uniter. The designer, Henry Bacon, drew inspiration from Greek Doric temples. Inside the memorial is a marble statue of Lincoln by sculptor Daniel Chester French. The design called for it to be elevated above the reflecting pool and above the surrounding landscape. Um, and the landscaping that you see, the hill that it's on, was created after the, uh, the memorial was created. Mike Litters from the National Park Service says he believes the Lincoln Memorial is a unique landmark. It has evolved beyond a memorial for Lincoln to become a backdrop for national celebrations, expressions of First Amendment rights, and civil rights demonstrations. Starting in 1939, for example, we see Marian Anderson give a concert on Easter morning here after being denied access to Constitution Hall due merely to the, the color of her skin. Of course, Martin Luther King delivers what is arguably the most famous speech in American history from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial uh, during the march uh, on Washington for jobs and freedom. Every year, more than 8 million make the pilgrimage to visit the Lincoln Memorial, making it the most visited memorial in the nation's capital. The National Park Service is holding special events and programs this month to honor the former president and this neoclassical temple. Among the thousands of visitors who come here every day, it's very easy to get a sense of awe and inspiration from those that climb the steps to, to the chamber. While it's bustling and, and full of activity outside, inside the chamber, there's almost universally a hushed reverence, uh, a, a, a quietness about it as people gaze upon the statue and move to, to, to the two walls to, to, to read the, 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 the speeches that are engraved there. The memorial uses materials from all across the nation, which symbolizes unification after the Civil War. There are the stairs made from Massachusetts granite, the statue made from Georgian marble, the exterior walls of Ewell marble from Colorado, and the ceiling tiles from Alabama. The Lincoln Memorial is open 24 hours a day, every day of the year. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News.
And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a new law in California will establish drug injection sites in several major cities. But activists are criticizing it, and they cited one example where the initiative has already failed its mission. And in the NBA tonight, Boston looks to eliminate top-seeded Miami. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down how the Celtics got this far. That and more coming up. Several groups are speaking out against legalizing drug injection sites. They warn that it would pave the way to legalizing all drugs. During a virtual press conference, leaders of multiple organizations voiced their strong opposition to Senate Bill 57, also known as the Controlled Substances Overdose Prevention Program. The data show that drug deaths increased over the same period that they expanded supervised drug consumption sites. Senator Scott Weiner introduced the bill, and the California Senate passed it last April. The intention is to create drug consumption locations that will have medical staff on site to avoid people overdosing. The sites are to be established in San Francisco, Oakland, and Los Angeles County. But opponents say the injection sites only make it easier and encourage people to use drugs even if they are not at a site. I've gone out to say, look, there's a safe injection site literally five blocks away, why don't you just go there and use that site? And they don't want to go that far. They said, why? And, and I get it because when they have drugs in their hands, they're going to use it. Moreover, the injection sites always become a magnet for drug dealers, drug addicts, robbers, and the like, hurting the nearby communities seriously. They highlighted the now-failed Tenderloin Linkage Center in San Francisco. It was designed to keep the open drug scene contained in an area, but instead has spread across two neighborhoods. The goal was to link people to drug recovery, but that part of the center has been shut down after roughly four months of operation because very few people received help. The whole program is contrary to how they do it in Europe. In Europe, they pressure addicts engaged in dysfunctional, inappropriate behavior. They do not normalize drug consumption in those European cities. San Francisco is normalizing hard drug use, open-air drug dealing, and public camping as somehow normal behaviors that should be expected from people using hard drugs. And the reason so much attention is being drawn to it recently is because of the deaths of folks that, you know, um, come from well-to-do families. And it's tough because they're turning um, to these things to, to inject drugs like heroin. They get, obviously, they start with opiate epidemic, and they switched over to heroin because heroin is much cheaper. So it's being involved, it's being engaged, and fighting it. A hearing for SB 57 is scheduled on June 1st. An FBI probe exposed widespread corruption in a major Southern California city's government. In the aftermath, one city council member gave a behind-the-scenes perspective on a major contract that just went sour and the alleged corruption that came with it. The city of Anaheim in Southern California is home to Disneyland, the Angels baseball team, and a corrupt group of individuals pulling all the strings in government. That's according to city council member Jose Moreno. 
the city of Anaheim for decades, with the exception of two years, 2016 to 2018, has, has been run by a shadow government. It's, it's been run and at what is now understood in the lexicon of Anaheim, a cabal. That's in our FBI documents. They called themselves that. They called themselves a family. One member of the alleged cabal, former Mayor Harry Sadu, resigned this week amid an FBI corruption probe. Moreno told California insiders Siamak Karami that Sadu misled the community in an obscure lease extension deal that was unfavorable for the city, but favorable for the manager of the Angels. At least two of us thought, Denise Barnes and I, and the public, and the media, thought he was simply asking for a one-year extension on the lease. What it was was a reinstatement of the original lease, <laughs> which meant his move, his, 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 his agendizing this and then getting the council majority to go with him, they reinstated a lease, which meant he re-encumbered the land. He's back in control again for the land. We lost most of, if not all of our negotiating power. He gave that away. Counselors just recently walked away from three years of negotiating with team owner Arte Moreno's development management company. The council voted unanimously on May 24th to void the $320 million deal with the Angels baseball team to purchase the Angels stadium. The former mayor allegedly had under the table dealings with the owner. And so now in retrospect, I could see exactly what happened. It's he had made a promise to Artie Moreno that whatever it takes, you're gonna get a great deal out of this city for your interest if you help me win the mayorship. And he delivered. Entity reached out to the Anaheim mayor pro tem for comments, but did not hear back by press deadline. To watch the full program, you can find California Insider on YouTube or on Epic TV on the Epic Times website. And the U.S. Census Bureau's annual population totals show that the trend of people leaving big cities in America is still continuing. The majority of the nation's largest cities are reporting declines. NTD's Jason Blair brings us the latest numbers. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 13 of the 20 largest cities in the U.S. saw a drop in population between July 2020 and July 2021, eight of those being in the top 10. San Francisco saw the steepest percentage decline in the country. It lost 6.3% of its residents compared to 2020. New York City lost 3.8% and Washington, D.C., 2.8%. Among the seven in the list that gained numbers, the highest is Fort Worth with a 1.4% gain, with San Antonio and Phoenix following each gaining just under 1%. When counting the 15 fastest growing cities by percentage with 50,000 people or more, the state of Arizona claims the most with five of the top 15 and Texas, Florida and Idaho tying for second with three each. Jason Blair, NTD News. California's energy prices, already high, are likely to get higher. The long drought they're facing could lower their hydropower by almost a half. That's according to the Energy Information Administration. It says hydropower may be producing 8% of California's electricity as opposed to 15%. This may also lead to a 6% increase in carbon dioxide emissions and a 5% increase in electricity prices. Government data shows that California has the second highest residential electricity prices in the country behind Hawaii. 
Officials say the state may lose power this summer during heat waves and wildfires because the grid lacks capacity. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Tonight in NBA, Boston can clinch a trip to the finals for the first time since 2010 with a win at home over Miami. The Celtics pulled out a critical win in Game 5 Wednesday by running away with the game in the second half. Boston held the Heat to just 7 of 45 shooting from three-point range as Miami hit just 32% of their shots overall. The Celtics had Defensive Player of the Year Marcus Smart back for Game 5, though he's still listed as questionable for tonight's contest. The Heat are also banged up as sixth man of the year and second leading scorer Tyler Hero missed his second straight contest with a hamstring injury. Meanwhile, teammates P.J. Tucker, Max Struss, and Kyle Lowry all played in Game 5 but are still listed as questionable with injuries. Should Miami pull off the win, they'd get Game 7 at home Sunday with the winner facing Golden State in the Finals. The Warriors topped Dallas last night 120-110 to advance their sixth Finals appearance in eight years. Guard Steph Curry became the first ever recipient of the Magic Johnson Trophy, awarded to the MVP of the Western Conference Finals. On the ice tonight, St. Louis will look to stave off elimination as they host Colorado, trailing 3-2 in the series. The Blues rallied from a 3-0 deficit Wednesday in Game 5 to tie the game with less than a minute left in regulation before winning in overtime. History is still on Colorado's side, though, as teams that have led 3-1 in a series have gone on to win 90% of the time in a best-of-seven set, though the Rangers just pulled off the feet in round one against the Penguins. The winner of this series will face Edmonton, which beat Calgary last night 5-4 in overtime to advance. In other NHL news, 50-year-old former NHL star Yarmir Yager is leaning toward playing his 35th professional season with Clado of the Czech Republic. Yager, an eight-time All-Star and former Hart Trophy winner, last played in the NHL in 2018 with Calgary. A former first-round pick of Pittsburgh, back in 1990, Yager exited the game four years ago with the second-highest point total of all time, trailing only the great one, Wayne Gretzky. At the French Open today, both 13-time champion Rafael Nadal and reigning champion Novak Djokovic advanced the fourth round with straight sets wins. The two are on a collision course to meet in the quarterfinals instead of the finals, a disappointing venue for a match that most believe will determine the champion. Since Nadal first won here 17 years ago, just three others have managed to squeeze in a title. Roger Federer in 2009, Stan Wawrinka in 2015, and Djokovic in 2016, as well as last year. Elsewhere at the French, American Coco Gauff advanced the fourth round with a straight sets win. At 18 years of age, she's the youngest woman left in the draw. That's all for sports today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, another protest erupts in a Chinese university. Students voice their discontent with strict blockade measures, rules that have trapped them on campus. But unlike other protests, these students brought a new slogan to the march, chanting, down with bureaucracy. And Russian forces are making slow but persistent advances in Ukraine's Donbas region. Ukraine's foreign minister warns that without a resupply of foreign weapons, Ukrainian forces won't be able to stop Russia from seizing two more cities. That and more here on NTD News.
Demonstrations broke out in China's Tianjin University Thursday night. Students were heard shouting, down with bureaucracy, amid demands that they be allowed to leave the shuttered campus and go home. Dozens of police officers were sent to the site to stamp out the protest. And this on the eve of one of the most sensitive anniversaries in China. Check it out. Following several successful protests in Beijing universities, another erupted in Tianjin University Thursday night. The city's strict zero-COVID-19 rules mean students have been stuck on campus and blocked from going home. Thursday, hundreds of them assembled on campus to protest, yelling, let me go home. The student protest marked a decision to take the mass appeal route, rather than addressing concerns more quietly through representatives and school leaders. More worrisome for Chinese officials, the latest protest featured two new slogans, down with formalism and down with bureaucracy. What's meant by formalism? It's a rare term in Western nations, but a relatively common one in authoritarian countries. Chinese affairs analyst Tang Jingwen explains that the so-called formalism refers to when situations or events are scripted or prearranged for a certain outcome. Students have complained about the months-long lockdown on campus, especially because no new infection cases have been found in the area. They also say life on campus has gotten hard, with skyrocketing prices for essential goods and depression rates rising. Local authorities ordered all Tianjin students to shelter in place for three days starting Friday and to wait for further instructions. Students were told they will be confined to campus until the end of the year. Residents are prohibited from moving their vehicles. Grocery stores, pharmacies, and food markets are the only shops that remain open. As for the university protests, posters declare the students' demands. One, that they will be allowed to go home. And two, that those who participated in the protests not be held accountable or punished. They reportedly plan to march again on Saturday to keep up the pressure on school authorities. A lot of the medicine consumed by Americans is produced in India. The country is the third, world's third largest medicine maker by volume, but it's heavily dependent on China for raw materials. NTD's Sean Marshall tells us how India is trying to fix this. A third of the medical pills consumed in the United States are made in India. India is the third largest drug manufacturer by volume. But India is very dependent on ingredients that come from China. One government report says India imports 68% of its active pharmaceutical ingredients from China because they're cheap. Another report puts it at 85%. Another report says drugs that use these Chinese ingredients include penicillin and azithromycin. To fix this, India launched the production-linked incentive scheme. This PLI scheme was aimed at incentivizing the industry in terms of increasing local production of such APIs or KSMs so that the dependence on China can reduce to some extent. Deepak Jatwani is an assistant vice president at credit ratings firm ICRA Limited, the Indian affiliate of Moody's. The firm does credit ratings for Indian pharmaceutical companies. Jatwani says the total investment is around 210 billion Indian rupees or around 2.7 billion US dollars. We expect that the overall import dependence, which is as high as 65-70% uh, at present, to go down by almost 25 to 30 percent. 
over the next five to six years. And some of India's largest pharmaceutical companies are involved, including Sun Pharmaceutical Industries, Dr. Reddy's Laboratories, Lupin, and Aurobindo Pharma. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Russian forces are making slow but persistent advances in Ukraine's Donbas region. And as Kyiv urges the West to send more weapons, British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss says it's legitimate to send Ukraine heavy firepower, such as tanks and planes. NTD's Trevor Piper has more on this. Russian forces on Friday pounded the last Ukrainian strongholds in Luhansk, a separatist-controlled eastern province of Ukraine. Russian forces have made slow but persistent advances as they bombarded and sought to encircle both Lysychensk and Severodonetsk. In Donetsk, the Donbass region's other province, Russian-backed rebels claimed on Friday to have taken control of Lyman, a large railway hub. Ukrainian officials acknowledged Kiev's forces fell back in the face of Moscow's biggest advance for weeks. Ukraine insisted its forces were still holding firm at new defensive lines in the eastern Donbass region, despite the apparent Russian advances on two of the major fronts there, battles that showed how momentum has shifted in recent days. In the direction of Lyman, Ukrainian defenders are counteracting the enemy's attempts to push our troops from the northwestern and southeastern parts of Lyman and press an advance on Slovyansk. Ukraine's foreign minister warned that without a new injection of foreign weapons, Ukrainian forces would not be able to stop Russia from seizing the two cities, locations that are crucial to Russia's goal of capturing all of Ukraine's industrial Donbass region. British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss said on Friday it was legitimate for allies to send tanks and planes to Ukraine during her visit to Czech Republic. We need to make sure is that supply of heavy weapons continues to get to Ukraine. They continue to have uh, our support and also we're looking at how to upgrade Ukraine to make sure they've got NATO standard equipment. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko said on Thursday he was forming a southern military command and sending battalion tactical groups to the area that borders Ukraine. We are now forced to quickly optimize our southern border defenses. You can see that. The armed forces are rotating special forces from the western and northwestern sectors. Battalion tactical troops are requested to send south. Belarusian territory has been used for rocket attacks on Ukraine, but its military has so far not taken part in the Russian ground operation. Ukrainian authorities have expressed concern and fear that Belarus may agree to wider participation in the war. Several strikes hit Ukraine's second biggest city, Kharkiv, on Thursday, as local authorities claim Russian shelling killed at least seven civilians and wounded 17. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on Friday said Ukraine was not eager to talk to Russia's Vladimir Putin, but that it has to face the reality that this will likely be necessary to end the war. Trevor Piper, NTD News. Coming up, a three-day Star Wars celebration in Anaheim, California, features a special celebration for upcoming Lucasfilm television productions. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Three-day Star Wars celebration is happening in Anaheim, California. It began on Thursday with a special event for upcoming Lucasfilm television productions. While today, the first episode of a new series starring Obi-Wan Kenobi launches online. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. 
Ewan McGregor stars and executive produced Obi-Wan Kenobi and explained why he reprised the role from the prequel films without there being a script. It wasn't that they sent me a script and I said yes or no to it. We sort of developed the story together to a degree. It was going to be a movie at one point. Deborah Chow then came on and it became a TV series. And so with Deborah's brilliant direction, we, we, we ended up, I think, with a really good story, you know. Also retaking his role as Hayden Christensen, although now he is Darth Vader instead of Anakin Skywalker. This meant the Canadian actor had to don the iconic black suit for the role. I mean, it's, it's such an you know, incredible costume uh, and such an iconic costume that um, you put it on and you, you can't help but feel that. You know, and then certainly walking out onto set and sort of seeing people's reactions, uh, that's always been good fun and, and I've always really enjoyed that part of it. The second television series soon to be launched is Andor, which follows the history of Cassian Andor from the film Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Although the character died at the end of the film, he lives on again in two seasons of Andor, which is set to start streaming in August. The character is played by Diego Luna. I mean, I love the character, man. I, 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 I would play this character for a long time if possible, because uh, I, really, I, I really find a, a strong connection with, with this role. I think this role reminds us what we're capable of, you know? It's about the people taking control. It's about you understanding that what matters to you might matter to others. Aside from a poster and an appearance from Harrison Ford at the Lucasfilm panel, there were few film projects being showcased while TV projects remained in the spotlight. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And once again, if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.